Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening this week, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as more people can find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, we'll talk about the economy, which is boogieing down into negative growth numbers in 1970s sheen, and the new Disinformation Governance Board at the Department of Homeland Security. But first, uh, we're going to take a knee on a football field. And uh, no, not for the reason that you may be thinking of, for a different one to discuss. The case that was argued last week at the Supreme Court Kennedy v. Bremerton School District. Bremerton School District is in Washington State. If you've heard about this case, it is likely because it involves a football coach, uh, Mr. Kennedy, who kneeled at the 50-yard line to say a prayer at the end of games. So I'll take an excerpt here from uh, the New York Times piece on this. To hear Mr. Kennedy tell it, he sought only to offer a brief, silent, solitary prayer, little different from saying grace before a meal in the school cafeteria. Uh, From the perspective of the school board, however, the public nature of his prayers and his stature as a leader and role model meant that students felt forced to participate, whatever their religion and uh, whether they wanted to or not. The district did give him... um, made attempts to reach an accommodation with him to give him other places not on the at the center of the field uh, to be able to pray silently after the game and he rejected those options so it is before the Supreme Court it was argued uh, last week and if I'm again giving my non-lawyer analysis of all of this I think I think it seems very likely that uh, Coach Kennedy is going to win this case. Uh, The signs are there from the other justices that he is going to win this case. But I think there is, and I'll get into this a little bit later, I I do think there there are some problems with the way that Coach Kennedy has conducted himself um, in bringing this case, this incident, to where we are Right now, so the Sam, a lot of this hovers around uh, the delicate sensibilities around uh, prayer and public schools, and whether or not Mr. Kennedy, Coach Kennedy here, is acting in an f- official capacity as an em- public employee, an employee of a public school. Again, we should stress this is a public school where this is happening, um, and whether or not he's engaged in just private speech, and where the lines are between the two of those. Well, uh, part of this reflects the general jurisprudence that has prevailed in much of the United States since the 1950s on this subject of religious liberty and the way it plays out in institutions that are uh, funded by the government. Public officials, in fact, pray in all sorts of different settings all time. Presidents, who are the most senior, most visible public official in the United States, offer prayer in public all the time. So uh, to my mind, him praying in, in, in a school setting like this is not problematic. It's not clear to me that he's trying to impose anything upon anyone. He's not forcing anyone to do anything. Uh, you know, and of course, the, the prevailing sentiment somehow is that 
public schools by definition should not be having people praying in them, which implies a whole understanding of what the public square and public institutions are all about. Um, The founders would have found it very strange not to have prayer in particular circumstances. But this, and now I appreciate there's a difference between officially mandated prayer, which at least certainly in many jurisdictions in the United States you really can't do for the moment, as opposed to people praying privately uh, to themselves and not sort of forcing anyone to follow suit or anything like that. So, uh, I mean, this is one of these cases where I suspect the Supreme Court will rule in favour of the coach. It'll probably be a relatively narrow ruling, as is characteristic of the Roberts Court in the sense that they'll draw boundaries around it. Um, So, I mean, I don't think we're going to have any particular surprises here, uh, but it does tell us something about how a lot of people in the United States do think about public schooling, some of the laws and regulations that apply to public schooling in the United States, and also this sort of assumption, which I think is false, that the secular position is somehow neutral. Secularism is not neutral. Secularism has a whole group of assumptions about the human person, about the purpose of life, about reason, will, God, etc., that is implicitly built into it. And I think in some respects, when you he- when people get nervous about someone in a public setting invoking prayer, invoking God, or something like that, in, some, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, it's really about the fact that they assume that this, this particular understanding of what secular means ought to be, effectively, the official religion of public institutions. So I think, Sam, what you raised there is, uh, I think there is a question about coercion that is at least worth having a conversation about there, that uh, we're talking about 14 to 18-year-old students here at a public school. Um, this is a football coach. This is somebody who is determining um, if they're going to play on the varsity or the JV football team, uh, how much playing time that they are going to get. And he has clearly expressed that it is his belief that one of the ways that you become a good football player is to pray with him, is to participate in this. Now, this is a what's interesting about the context of it is. It is overwhelmingly popular or is very popular. There's a story of how there was a band member uh, as the coach was going out to the 50-yard line uh, got hurt in a stampede. And you would hear the – you may assume that this is because of a ruckus being created and people objecting to what the coach is doing. No, it was people rushing to join him. Um, So there are – we're talking about a case where there is clearly a majority sentiment in favor of what Coach Kennedy is doing. But there are minorities in there who would be – needed to be protected from from potentially being coerced. And somebody in a position of authority like Coach Kennedy is – he can say that, you know, there's, you know, it won't affect anything. Um, it won't affect your playing time. It won't affect which uh, varsity or junior varsity team you're going to be on. But it wouldn't be unreasonable for someone to read into that the conclusion of if I don't do this, then maybe it is going to impact my standing on this football team. There's a very strange um, – <clears throat> way in which religion has been handled in American public education for a long time. And when I was when I was reading into a little bit of the background of this story, I remembered 
We had a prayer group at my public school that would meet outside of the school at the flagpole at the entrance of the school. And this was led by a local sort of youth pastor, um, sort of, you know, sort of general non-denominational sort of thing. Um, Nothing highly contentious in terms of, you know, praying for the health and safety of students, staff, praying for, you know, educational opportunities, all of this sort of thing. But it was designed in such a way that it wasn't inside of the school. And it was designed in such a way that um, faculty were surely invited, but faculty were not involved in any sort of organization. Um, and this always struck me as very odd compared to the way we would handle, let's say, political groups or affinity groups. Um, There are all sorts of ways in which we expect schools to be neutral places, but we're somehow uniquely preoccupied with religion um, in a way that we aren't in all of these other realms where I think, you know, most Americans would agree it's important for uh, students and faculty to feel comfortable, to not feel coerced. Um, I think that language is often overblown these days. And there is something in particular about religion that seems to drive the controversy. And in this case, also the enthusiasm. Um, so there's there's a unique sort of set of challenges here um, that are very, very particular to American institutions and the history of American institutions uh, you know, educational institutions with religion and public life. And that's been the fascinating angle to see as I've watched this unravel. Yeah, I think there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's, and I, I'm borrowing this from the Advisory Opinions uh, podcast that the Dispatch produces, uh, Sarah Isger and David French's analysis, which will include a, a link in the show notes, I thought, on the legal questions here. Their, their analysis was really good. And as, as Isger pointed out, there are essentially three potential outcomes of this case. The coach wins. It's private speech. It doesn't matter if he's the center of attention. You can pray publicly at the 50-yard line or really wherever with whomever or wherever you want to um, because he is not acting in his capacity, in an official capacity. He's acting in a personal capacity when doing this and that there is time taken, um, even if you're a public employee, throughout the day where you're doing things technically on time, on company time, but you're not acting as an official representative. When when he's texting his wife, he is not acting as an official representative of the Bremerton School District. There's the the possibility that he loses, uh, determines that it is school time and you can engage in that kind of behavior, and everyone seems to think that this is incredibly unlikely. Uh, There's a third option that the Supreme Court could send it back because the school um, has screwed up in the way that they have argued this case, that um, there are different points that they could make. They could appeal to a different test for whether or not um, this uh, Coach Kennedy is making – Uh, This problematic by it being First Amendment protected speech, but it is creating uh, a substantial or material disruption to the school related proceedings. Now that again, that's all the legal side of it. I think what Sam raised in terms of the cultural side of it is uh, is interesting, I think deserves more consideration. But I I guess I would throw back to Sam if, you know, 
do you think that there is any merit to that case of people saying that you're talking about 14 to 18 year olds um, who may not want to participate with him, but feel a social pressure given the you know majority being in favor of it and being this uh, this coach being an important decision maker to participate uh, whether they want to or not? Well, if the coach has said, look, this doesn't the fact that I'm praying doesn't affect <clears throat> whether I'm going to um, put you on the bench or put you in the game or give you more hours than others. If he says that that's basically irrelevant to my decisions as a coach, that's fine. I mean, I do think Dan's point here about the weirdness with which religion is treated in American government schools, and they are government schools, let's keep that in mind, um, is 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 odd and uh, <laughs> I, I have to say, when it comes to government schools, let's not pretend that there are plenty of people at government schools who, despite proclaiming their neutrality, et cetera, et cetera, are consistently pushing all sorts of ideological agendas. Uh, so ideology's okay, but religion's not. I mean, this I think Dan's right. This is, reflects a particular weirdness about the way that religion is generally treated in the public square in America, which uh, I, I think... <clears throat> has something to do with the First Amendment. Uh, it has something to do with the way the courts have grappled with this issue over the past, well, I guess uh, 80 years now. So it's it's reflective. I mean, beyond the, the details of this particular case, I think it's another good example of the way in which religion raises questions in people's minds in public institutions that overt pushing of ideological agendas and in the case of government schools, obviously overwhelmingly from the left, apparently doesn't. Dan, do you think this has any impact on things like what we're seeing in Florida with the parental rights in education bill that we've been discussing on this podcast that on uh, – you know, on one hand, the rebuttal to that has had to do with the free speech of people who are working within K to 12 school systems. And again, we see a case here having to do with the free speech um, of people working in K-12 school systems. So to, to Sam's point, it, it, it would seem to be that we need some kind of a adjudication here of, you know, what is allowed and what is not. So either Coach Kennedy is free to do what he is doing, as well as those teachers that um, feel that they are being attacked by the parental rights and education bill in Florida are also free to talk about the things that they think are important, these ideological concerns. Or we have a more restrictive take on it where Coach Kennedy can't do what he is currently doing on a football field, nor do those teachers have the same free reign to talk about issues of gender and uh, sexual ideology within the four walls of the classroom. I mean, I think there's there's an important distinction, and and this got out when we when we talked about this parental rights and education bill in Florida, that the bill was originally uh, prohibited discussion of these things and then was changed to instruction. So there is a real sense in which, you know, I think the vast majority of Americans would think it would, it would be inappropriate for, let's say, a football coach doing play reviews to then do religious instruction as part of, um, as part of uh, the sort of coaching regimen. Um, is this more akin to discussion or instruction is, is, is sort of the question. And there's, 
also just a curious case of a lot of this, you know, this will be adjudicated by the courts. But part of why we're here is we went from what was essentially in American public education, a religious establishment, a particular form of sort of general American Protestantism was taught in American public schools for many, many years. This is the impetus behind not only sort of the the Roman Catholic parochial school system in the United States, but also, you know, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod had as, as an extensive network of schools. And there are a lot of folks, um, you know, from a variety of religious traditions that this has been an impetus for the beginnings of religious education in the United States. Now, if you take that away, if all of a sudden you have a very religious people and the Amer- Americans are, uh, the sociologist Peter Berger used to talk about how, you know, Americans are, are, are akin to Indians in religiosity, but they're ruled by Swedes, by a sort of secular elite. And we are going to have, unless we can come to some sort of public consensus derived from public reason rather than sort of ad hoc court prohibitions on certain things in certain contexts, um, this, this continues to be, unre- to be unresolved. And perhaps one way around this would be uh, for school districts, for state school uh, standards to sort of specify the place of religion in these public spaces. And again, as Sam alluded to, this isn't a problem in legislative sessions. You know, we have chaplains in the House of Representatives. This is something very particular to schools. And I think it has to do with that history of the schools being, in a sense, more explicitly religious than any other institutions in American public life. And then a sort of ad hoc court rulings to sort of secularize them. Um, and I think we need a sort of robust public edu- public conversation about these issues, and we can't, in a way, depend on the courts to adjudicate this unless th- th- there's there's going to be no final public settlement. If this is something that is continually being negotiated and renegotiated and litigated in the courts, there's a way in which that denies sort of the democratic impulse and causes us to never quite square that circle of the particular strange place in America we are, where we do have um, segments of the American political elite that are very committed to an explicit secularism, while we have an overwhelmingly religious populace. Um, And this is something that, you know, again, in these communities, these things are often often they never get to the courts because this is just the way things are done all the time have been done um, from time immemorial and I think it is important because there are concerns with religious minorities um, in schools for us to have sort of a robust public conversation about what that would look like. But that is something that um, it seems we abandoned when we abandoned the explicit religious orientation of public education and we never resolved these issues. Yes, we went from basically establishment American Protestantism, right, to uh, more or less explicit 
secularism in a relatively quick period of time. Of course, another way that this is resolved in some respects is um, <laughs> the promotion of private education, uh, private schools, private, religiously affiliated, confessionally orientated schools, etc. Because then it's very clear that if you go to a Lutheran school, you go to a Jewish school, then you know the parents who send their children there know exactly what uh, the deal is, right? If you go to a Catholic school, you can't complain. You shouldn't complain if you're a parent. If the church, if the um, the religious, there's religious instruction in the first place, and the religious instruction is explicitly Catholic. Same goes would go for a Jewish school, for a Muslim school, or a Lutheran school, or a Calvinist school. I mean, th- I mean, this is part of the this. This is one way of trying to resolve this particular issue. Now, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Although we have seen, I think, partly as a consequence of COVID, a major uptick in the number of people who are willing to send their children to confessional schools that often have nothing to do with religion per se, but also just an awareness of some of the deep problems characterising government education that go beyond this particular issue that we're talking about this morning. You made uh, about half the point that I was going to make, which is, um, yes, you know, the, the role of private schools and particularly religiously affiliated schools to help mitigate and, and solve problems like this. Um just choice in education in general to, right. to open up the opportunity that if you are one of the people who is a religious minority at this particular school where Coach Kennedy uh, formerly coached, he's not a coach anymore, uh, to, the ability to go to a, even a different public school within that area. Um, I, I still don't think that fully alleviates the concerns that I think are, you know, while I, I agree to a certain extent with Sam, I want to take um, the coach at his word that this doesn't affect any of his decisions. I, I Call me a cynic on all of this. I don't know that I fully believe that. I, I think maybe that may even be his intention that he doesn't think it is. But I have a, a hard time fully accepting that it and doesn't enter in in any way, shape or form in, in all of this. And it would be, again, no problem if he were doing it at an expressly Christian school. Um, there It'd be would, weird if he didn't. It would be <laughs> right? it would, correct. It would be rather bizarre if he didn't do it there. Um, but that his his mission seems to be, and I know you know it is very trendy right now to only care about getting to good outcomes. And I, I particularly have no problem whatsoever with uh, in a vacuum what Coach Kennedy is doing, but he is, I think, just undeniably doing this to make a point. It, he had so many opportunities that the school expressed him to accommodate what he wanted to do in a way that they didn't feel was disruptive. And he refused them because he's he is trying, I think, to make a point here. I think he did it of an objective or at least in the back of his mind had a thought about winning a, a Supreme Court case on this. And, you know, you don't get to choose plaintiffs all of the time in cases like this. And he should win if, you know, by the 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 law and the facts of the case that have been laid out there's it, what's interesting is there's two different sets of facts if you read what the school board is saying and you read what coach kennedy is saying i i think the school will or the court will correctly rule in his favor on all of this but i just don't think that he has um shown himself in his best possible light in the way that he has conducted himself uh, in this case as well as I, I, it's worth noting that it's the school board that is the one who is saying, whoa, 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 whoa to all of this. These aren't cases that are being brought by individual students who say that they feel coerced. It is the school board and the school board feels compelled to act because of all of the jurisprudence that exists 
about the establishment clause. So, you know, I think we'll probably see Coach Kennedy victorious in all of this. Uh, and we're still going to be messily trying to figure out what the role of religion within public schools is even after this case is decided. I want to move back in time to now to the 1970s because, uh, boy, we, we have been just pounding on this topic, I feel like, um, that it feels like the 1970s all over again. And we had another good example of that last week when we got uh, GDP numbers for the first quarter and they have shrunk. Uh, the real gross domestic product decreased at an annual rate of one4 Uh, So we will be in a recession if we have a second quarter of all of that. Paired with that, though, that makes this uncommon is we're seeing simultaneously now inflation and negative growth, which was the two-headed monster of stagflation that so vexed everybody in the 1970s. So, Sam, I appreciate you putting the leisure suit on for this conversation. Uh, is how worried should we be about this? Should we be concerned of stagflation and true 1970s vibes taken over again? Or, given the inflation that we've been seeing, that the Fed has moved to raise interest rates, shouldn't in a way we be wanting uh, a recession as a way to break the back of inflation? Uh, Wouldn't that be a necessary component of it? Well, the 1970s, Eric, were disastrous on so many levels, not to mention uh, the fashion angle that you just uh, alluded to. But stagflation was very much a part of the Western world in the 1970s. 70s. And as you mentioned, it's when inflation is high and the economic growth rate slows or goes negative. The, the, third, the third part of stagflation is steadily high unemployment. Now, we don't have that in the United States at the moment. We have a rather different problem. We have labour market shortages. So uh, we, we're in a sort of pseudo-stagflation pseudo state. We're in a state that that if the unemployment rate started to tick up, it would look more and more like classic stagnation. But we've certainly got two of the three uh, pieces in place for a stagflationary set of economic circumstances. Now, as you said, uh, the way that one gets out of this, or one way to get out of this, of course, is to take on one of these three things and the most likely, at least in the present moment and depending on what the Fed does in terms of its resolution to deal with inflation, which I, th- I don't think is as strong as some people think it is, which worries me actually. But one way of dealing with this is effectively to keep jacking up interest rates until you force down um, or you basically increase the you, – you reverse – the steady decrease in the purchasing power of our money. That's how you bring inflation down. But as we all know, uh, certainly in the 1970s, early 1980s, that resulted in a recession. And it was it was pretty much understood that it would result in a recession because it would produce lower growth. And lower growth means um, there's lower demand, which means we go into a recessionary type of circumstances. And recessions, even mild recessions, aren't particularly fun to live through. 
So if, if, if that is the case and if that is the way that the Fed goes, my guess is that the chances of a, a recession become more and more likely. I don't know if you've been following some of the <clears throat> prognostications by Deutsche Bank in this area, but they started talking about the possibility of a recession in late 2023 in the United States. And when these uh, numbers came out last week with the negative growth uh, plus an increase in inflation, they... Uh, <laughs> felt themselves rather vindicated and doubled down on the claim that they think we could well face recessionary circumstances. And recessions are really unpleasant. Now, I don't know how you get out of stagflation beyond uh, raising interest rates to break the back of this increase in inflation. I don't see there's any other alternative to dealing with that. But let's not kid ourselves, there will be people, if, if the Fed goes down that path, and as I've said, the Fed is, it, I mean, it talks, it talks a big game in one, some respects, but if you look at some of the members of the, of what's called the Federal Open Markets Committee, FOMOC is the acronym, the way that they're talking, this is a Fed that's not consisting of monetary hawks. This is a Fed whose instincts are dovish. So I think they're being dragged in this direction by reality, by inflationary realities. But if they do do this, if they do decide that this is the way they're going to go and they're going to jack up interest rates, uh, then I think there will be people that suffer. And that's very regrettable, but we should never have got into this situation in the first place. And the scary thing I find, I've said this on a few occasions, the very same people who got us into this mess are the people who are responsible for getting us out of this mess. There's another way potentially to address this. And I am extremely skeptical along with Sam that the political will exists in the Fed to do the sort of substantial rate hikes we saw under Paul Volcker. And I think there's good reason for that in the sense that we are a more leveraged country right now. Um, these interest rates affect the rate that the United States uh, has to deal with its public debt, which is greater than ever. It has to deal with the way that corporations service their debt, which is, again, they're much more highly leveraged, and the way that individuals as well are leveraged. So one one way forward and this would this is trickier because this involves um a sort of robust public policy conversation is one way is to uh address this from the growth angle and to look at reforms that can give us a more dynamic growing economy one way that you know it, the Biden administration hasn't shown any enthusiasm for this but one way would be uh Easing trade restrictions, tariffs, um, these sorts of things. One way would be deregulating aspects of industry. Um, and there's not the political will right now, but um, these things can often serve as catalysts if they get bad enough or if we have um, a different uh, sort of political composition of the House and Senate after the next elections. So – yeah, there's 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 options. Uh, all of them are really difficult uh, politically right now. Yes, I, I just add to that that Dan's right. There are other options. The risk with those other options, of course, is that um, as a risk as is risk with all options. The risk with those other options is that you you get 
excessive demand, right? And the economy, economy's productive capacities can't keep up. And that's another cause of inflation. So this, this is the dilemma, right? Because you can't, if, if we just reduced tariffs significantly, that would reduce the prices of things, which would be great because that would have inflationary, good inflationary implications in terms of reducing inflation. But it would also add to um, the dynamism of the economy and could potentially also stimulate inflation as well. So uh, these are some of the very difficult dilemmas that we face when dealing with a problem like inflation and why it's very unwise to get yourself into these situations in the first place. There is, of course, also the way we tried to deal with this in the 70s before the rate hikes, which was wage and price controls, Right. which is my great fear with this situation is that we really go back to the 70s, uh, the early 70s and the mid 70s and not the late 70s in how we tend to, uh, how we try to resolve this. And that could result in shortages in all sorts of additional disruption to the economy, um, which would frankly, I think, be better than doing nothing at all, which is, of course, always an option that's on the table that is never appealing um, and that has its own sort of dire consequences because broad-based inflation acts as a very extremely regressive sort of tax that hurts- Especially on the poor. Yeah. It hurts the living standards of those on a fixed income of the poor uh, in, a, in a disproportionate way to everyone else. I want to make a point about our public, governmental, political incoherence about all that's going on right now. So very clearly, inflation is a problem. If we're entering a recession, that is very clearly also a problem. What is the significance of the number 1.75 trillion? Anybody know? 1.75 trillion. That's the total amount of outstanding student loan debt in the United States. So at a period of time where we're facing this kind of inflation that we have not seen since the 1970s, we are looking down the barrel of a potential recession of interest rate hikes on financing debt. What is the conversation about politically right now? about whether or not we should, quote unquote, cancel $1.75 trillion in student loan debt. Now, of course, you can't cancel it. That doesn't work. Why doesn't that work? Because the money has already been spent. It has already been lended out. And again, remind people, $1.6 trillion, 92% of that from the federal government. It has been spent. A college education, and as I think we I noted previously when we talked about this topic, um, a lot of the figures where you're you have people with enormous hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, you're talking about people with graduate degrees, PhDs, who are doctors, who are lawyers, who have been through multiple um, parts of higher education. Uh, all of that money has already been spent. It's not a Toyota. We can't go repossess the education and the networking that you got uh, from going to college or going to graduate school or going to Harvard Law School. There's 
frankly, a very interesting sci-fi plot right there if somebody wanted to write it of how we would go back and repossess the uh, knowledge and experience that people had there. I'll just throw that out there for anybody who wants to. Um, I think I heard somebody else float that idea, so it's not even original from me. But hey, it sounds like a great sci-fi uh, classic in the making. But we're actually having a conversation about whether or not we should transfer the liability from the people who borrowed that money to the taxpayers, which would have inflationary effects. It would be the equivalent of just having spent $1.75 trillion or however much uh, as President Biden mulls over an executive order. Uh, going back to our rule of law questions from the last segment of this program, um, an executive order to just obliterate $10,000, up to $10,000 of student loan debt for anybody who wanted to jump at the opportunity to take him up on that offer. It is incoherent the way that we are talking about this very serious problem of inflation and on the other hand, very casually having a conversation about spending another $1.75 trillion to provide relief to people in the middle class, to upper middle class, to the wealthy, people with incredibly high incomes overall. It's insane and incoherent and kind of fits perfectly in our time. It's also unjust. It's deeply unjust, right? I mean, because this is essentially uh, people who have freely taken on debt. So, you know, you might say, well, these are 18-year-olds when they made these decisions. Well, we also let 18-year-olds vote as well, right? So, so to my mind, this is deeply inequitable because, as you, as you said, Eric, the people who will benefit from this are not people who are on the uh, the lower end of the income scale. These are not people who are working class, blue collar people. It's people who are or will be comfortably uh, middle class, even upper middle class, and their debt is effectively being transferred to the rest of the country because it's not cancelled. As you say, it's not cancelled at all. It's just transferred and spread throughout the rest of the population. I, I also think it, it reflects in some respects how much the um, – uh, certainly parts of the Democratic Party have changed, right, because I can't imagine that they would have made this sort of argument 20, 30 years ago, but it reflects, I think, the fact that the, they certainly see – certain large segments of the Democratic Party see themselves – as in the future as being the party of, let's call it this knowledge class for want of a better expression. And this is a great way for them to reward their, their one of these constituencies. But as you say, uh, the fact that it will almost certainly add to inflationary pressures tells us just how incoherent public policy is today. Again, to, to be clear, for the people uh, who we hear about in these conversations about canceling student loan debt that people who are in danger of, you know, being totally bankrupted by it uh, is the people who are most in danger of default owe about $4,000. So there, there is a completely credible argument for some kind of assistance, I think, for people in those positions. Um, there, I think there's also a credible argument for changing the way that we treat student loans with regard to bankruptcy. That I didn't know this, but just found this out over the weekend, that there is this whole history of this fear that existed that people would um, graduate from undergrad uh, medical school and they would have two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. And if you're going to become a doctor, you're perfectly capable of paying that back over time. But that people would emerge while they're doing their residency, they would file bankruptcy 
uh, in order to get rid of all of that debt. And by the time that, you know, seven some years elapse, they, they're now into private practice. They're earning enough money. They can take out the mortgage that they want. And they are just free from all of that debt. I don't know that this actually happened. I'm sure there are incidents of it. But it does seem more kind of like a moral panic that took over and led to the inability to discharge in bankruptcy student loans, uh, which I think is a huge part of the problem. And that's a way, I mean, this is the way we handle every other problem with debt in this country. This is the way we handle, and it's a long established practice, and it works relatively well, um, and it allows these things to be adjudicated on a case-by-case basis. I mean, when we're talking about inflationary effects, think about Think about when you have those, you know, the columns that show up in the New York Times and it's the profiles of the people that are saddled with this debt. What do they talk about this debt preventing them from doing? They talk about this uh, debt preventing them from, let's say, buying a home, from, you know, uh, from doing all of these other things, from starting a family, from all of these things. All of these things will involve substantial inflows of cash into an economy. And all of this will further, just as the way that Sam cautioned, you know, even some of the deregulatory things, that under normal circumstances we would want to see for a dynamic market economy, in an inflationary situation – Um, These risks compound – I mean look at real estate values around the country. Now think of all of the people who if they have this debt summarily dismissed, uh, canceled, quote unquote. Transferred to someone else. Transferred to someone else. All of the sudden that money finds itself on an overheated real estate market. All of the sudden this money finds its way to the car dealership that is already – empty of vehicles. Um, And all of this will continue to drive up prices for everyone. Those who have uh, had their debt transferred and those who have not, um, which creates, which compounds this sort of distributive effect of this negative distributory effect of inflation, which hurts the least well off. Sam has a hard out in a few minutes here, so we're going to dispense with our final topic of the day with a question that I will pose to each of you. And it is about the announcement from the Department of Homeland Security that they have plans for a disinformation governance board, uh, which will do pretty much exactly what it sounds like it will do. It is this advisory uh, body within the Department of Homeland Security uh, to deal with the problem of disinformation within the American public life right now. I will turn to you first, Dan Huger. Um, Is this development uh, terrifyingly Orwellian? We are about to enter 1984. Or is it more reminiscent of a uh, government that has so little control to actually implement any of the nightmarish stuff that would come with 1984 that it is creating something like this that will be so easily dismissed by so many people? I think it's going to be closer to the latter. And if you look at the rationale given 
for this. And this was fascinating. For why is this in the Department of Homeland Security? They talk about addressing explicitly disinformation related to migration. And you have these caravans of migrants who come. And often this is coordinated. Often you know, Part of this is, is, is people who do human trafficking, who smuggle people into the country under false pretenses. You have all sorts of information in Latin America circulating about immig- uh, you know, uh, American immigration law that is false. Um, they go there expecting the system to be a certain way. They come to realize it's not. But I was thinking, you know, there was recently in in Texas, there were the, the, the large group of Haitians that crossed over. And this was maybe a year ago now. It's, it's, it's all a blur with the news cycle. But a lot of this was coordinated at this particular town and it was coordinated on WhatsApp. And I'm wondering how is DHS going to monitor Haitian group chats on WhatsApp? (laughs) (laughs) And how easy is it for them to switch over to doing those group chats on Discord or to use just regular old SMS, you know, text message technology? It strikes me as, as, as implausible that they can address these issues let alone these these broader issues that I'll that I'll let I'll let Sam focus on. Sam, nineteen eighty four, or laughably irrelevant. Uh, well, I agree with Dan. I'm I'm in I'm on the implausible side. Uh, now, of course, um, the, the the disturbing thing is once you go down this path of having a misinformation. <laughs> controlling misinformation uh, department or whatever bureau or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it sounds positively dystopian, right? Now, my guess is that if this was taken and applied to all sorts of other things outside this this specific realm of immigration, uh, my guess is that this would quickly collapse under any number of free speech challenges from the court system very, very quickly. But it's curious. What's curious to me is that that the people who were who came up with this genius idea didn't even think about the the the, the optics of this clearly. They clearly, I mean, it was one thing to say, hey, we need to monitor what's going on on the border so we can make sure that people are not being told false things because we're worried they're going to come to the United States with false expectations once they get to the border. Okay, there's a case for that. But calling it, giving it the name that they did and and just to see the way that people reacted with mockery of this, but also a certain degree of fear that there are some government officials who don't understand the optics of this. So it's, it, it's both implausible, it's sort of amusing on one level, but it also tells you a great deal about how people in Washington, D.C. view the world. Words mean things. This is one of my frustrations with this conversation. <clears throat> Disinformation is a term with a specific definition, but it has now been plied like silly putty to mean basically Anything that I don't like, it, it's like the, the joke um, uh, some people have long running about uh, a realist in foreign policy terms is somebody who's losing an argument. Um, it, it is very much the same thing. Anything I don't like is disinformation. Uh, what's you know somewhat hilarious about this is, and I, can, I apologize, I cannot pronounce her name. I will try Nina Jenkowitz, I believe, who is the woman who is the now disinformation czar. It is still hilarious to me that we always call these people czars. Only. <laughs> (laughs) If only the czar knew. 
um, <laughs> who, of course, you may have seen uh, singing Mary Poppins about disinformation. And she, of course, as you would expect, called the Hunter Biden laptop disinformation, um, which it was not. There's a lot of squirreliness around the story of the Hunter Biden laptop, but it had been it has been authenticated. It was actually his laptop with actual information on it. And yet we still throw around this term disinformation like it just means inconvenient facts. That is not what it is. The irony of a board within the confines of the federal government, the purpose of which is to monitor disinformation, when disinformation, if we are going by the dictionary definition, is, quote, false information, which is intended to mislead, especially propaganda issued by a government organization (laughs) to a rival power or to the media. It is going to engage in exactly the kinds of things that it is supposedly there to root out, which is, in a way, again, saddening to me because I don't want something like this to succeed, but it once again demonstrates how completely feckless our institutions are, that it can't do the things it sets out to do correctly, and in fact, will have the opposite consequences. Um, But on the other hand, it is a relief. It is a good thing to see that this has been laughed at largely and will probably never have a significant role in American public life because it couldn't be as threateningly Orwellian as it wants to be. And again, people are dismissing things that are absolutely true right now. You think they're not going to dismiss the word of some government board within the Department of Homeland Security? Of course they are. It, it is not going to accomplish any of what it seeks to accomplish. And if anything, it will make problems worse. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, again, please look in the show notes for a link. For where you can find uh, a link there to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Act and Unwind.